to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to Kathleen Powell, curator of the St. Catharines Museum and supervisor of historical services. Adrian Petrie, visitor services coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the museum. We're so excited to bring to you our sixth Museum Chat Live episode and our third special feature episode for Books and Brews. I hope everyone is excited about this book. The Illegal is just another hit novel from widely popular Canadian author Lawrence Hill, who also wrote The Book of Negroes which was made into a six-part miniseries by CBC in 2015. The Illegal was showered with nominations and awards, including the ever-coveted CBC Canada Reads title just last year. Here's a synopsis. Kida Ali is on the run. Like every boy on the mountainous island of Zantoroland, running is all Kida's ever wanted to do. In one of the poorest nations in the world, running means respect. Running means riches until Kida is targeted for his father's outspoken political views and discovers he must run for his family's survival. He signs on with notorious marathon agent Anton Ham, but when Kida fails to place among the top finishers in his first race, he escapes into Freedom State, a wealthy island nation that has elected a government bent on deporting the refugees living within its borders in the community of Africtown. Kida can stay safe only if he keeps moving and eludes Ham and the officials who would deport him to his own country where he would face almost certain death. This is the New Underground, a place where tens of thousands of people deemed to be illegal live below the radar of the police and government officials. As Kida services from time to time to earn cash prizes by running local road races, he has to assess whether the people he meets are friends or enemies. John Falconer, a gifted student struggling to escape the limits of his Africtown upbringing, Ivernia Beach, a spirited old woman at risk of being forced into an assisted living facility, Rocco Calder, a recreational marathoner and the immigration minister, Lula Di Stefano, self-declared queen of Africtown and madam of the community's infamous brothel, and Viola Hill, a reporter who is investigating the lengths to which her government will go to stop illegal immigration. Kida's very existence in Freedom State is illegal. As he trains in secret, eluding capture, the stakes keep getting higher. Soon he is running not only for his life, but for his sister's life too. Fast, moving, and compelling, the illegal casts a satirical eye on people who have turned their backs on undocumented refugees struggling to survive in a nation that does not want them. Hill's depiction of life on the borderlands of society urges us to consider the plight of the unseen and the forgotten who live among us. Today, we're very excited to feature a special conversation with historian and associate professor in the history department at Brock University, Murray Wickett. Our very own Kathleen Powell sat down with Murray to discuss the book ahead of our Books and Brews discussion on April 21st. In our podcast today, I'm also going to explore a comparison between the fictional Africtown and our own historical slab town here in St. Catharines.
Professor Murray Wickett, Associate Professor in History at Brock University, and we're going to talk about refugees, immigration, and ghettos. So, Murray, the book The Illegal deals with issues of race relations, immigration, refugees, and ghettos in a fictional country in Africa. Uh, while this is a work of fiction, it also reflects issues that are still prominent today around the world and are issues that both Canada and the United States have grappled with over the course of their history. As an American historian, your research has focused on issues of race in the United States, so it would be great to focus our discussion on that topic and uh, related to that to Canada's story as we go along. So first, let's talk about race relations. Uh, we like to believe that uh, Canada has a much better handle on race relations in its history than many other countries in the world. However, we've had a contentious history of race relations over the last 150 years uh, as a confederated country, most specifically related to Chinese, Japanese, and East Asians. Uh, can you elaborate on that? I think there's a major problem in Canada in that we're one of the few countries that actually looks at race relations through the lens of another country. Um, our basic conception is that we're better than the United States and somehow that makes us feel good and allows us to sort of sweep under the carpet anything that is ugly and uh, prejudicial. So I think it gives a false sense of race relations in Canada because we are constantly sort of comparing ourselves to the United States. Um, to give you an example, I would say if you ask most Canadians what makes Canada uh, more tolerant than the United States, it would be the absence of slavery. Um, and yet this reflects the ignorance of Canadians about their own history because the reality was, of course, during the period of New France and then after the conquest, there was about 4,000 uh, enslaved peoples in Canada and uh, those were often indigenous people, about two-thirds were indigenous, but about one-third were actually uh, Africans as well. And so I think because we didn't have large-scale plantation slavery, uh, Canadians have sort of swept this ugly chapter of their history under the rug, and I think that's a very sad thing. And realistically, uh, it's not an area that's given much attention in our educational system, and so I think that's part and parcel of this sort of constant comparison to the United States. What we hear about is the Underground Railroad and the success of freedom for African uh, peoples in Canada, but we overlook the fact that there was in fact slavery of both indigenous people and uh, Africans in Canada for uh, 200 years of our history. So race issues that Canadians were dealing with were somewhat different, as you say, uh, than those in the United States at the same time. Uh, what were the major factors that influenced race relations in 19th century America? Well, obviously the first one that comes to mind is in fact slavery. Uh, that is obviously the largest uh, impactful uh, race relations topic in the United States. Uh, but again, I think this is often misunderstood uh, in the sense that people see it as a debate between those that wanted slavery abolished and those that believed that slavery should continue in the South. Um, but realistically, uh, the truth of the matter is the issue at debate for most of the 19th century was the issue of the expansion of slavery, not the existence of slavery per se. Northerners and Southerners agreed that slavery was perfectly fine where it currently existed in the South, 
but they just northerners didn't want it to expand into the new lands uh, acquired in the west and that was really the issue that separated north and south um, you know a lot of people refer to Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator forgetting that it was Abraham Lincoln who in his inaugural speech said if I could end this war or and protect the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would. If I could end this war and protect the Union, freeing no slaves, I would. And I think that gives a sense that you know slavery was not the issue uh, that divided America at that time. It was clearly the expansion of slavery. How have uh, race relations continued to impact uh, American history in the 20th century? Well, I think, you know, if you look at uh, things today, obviously we're talking about a system uh, of systemic racism uh, towards minority groups. Uh, that includes things like incarceration rates that are uh, much higher for people who are non-white than uh, white. It talks obviously to the issues of contemporary ghettos, um, police brutality, uh, crime rates, uh, the formation of gangs, um, and so I think that legacy has, uh, you know, really created a lot of modern-day problems. Um, same thing could be said about uh, indigenous people in the United States. Uh, one of the major aspects of 19th century uh, race relations was the forced removal of native peoples and placement on reservations. Um, those reservations today often suffer from some of the highest unemployment rates, highest poverty rates, uh, almost third world living conditions in, in the case of people not having access to fresh water and not having access to sufficient medical care. Um, and so, uh, again, that's a legacy that uh, dates back to the 19th century. Um, Third sort of you know, uh, issue would be obviously the issue of uh, immigration. Immigration in the United States uh, through the late part of the 19th century was a huge issue. Um, and there's an automatic assumption that it was much more difficult for non-white people uh, to immigrate to, to the United States and become accepted. But I think if you look at groups like the Irish, for example, whose skin color was white, um, they had all of the advantages, and yet if you look at the way they were treated, they were segregated into ghettos, uh, they were discriminated against, and they were really looked down upon, um, probably in the sort of continuum of r the racial spectrum in the United States, we're probably just slightly above African Americans uh, as being, uh, you know, one of the lower uh, r related groups in America. So they faced a lot of problems uh, and uh, I think that continues to today that people f tend to overlook that there are a lot of poor white Americans uh, that struggle in ghettos and uh, um, I think that's a, a problem that uh, you know supersedes <coughs> race. <coughs> Last group I would say also uh, is the Chinese uh, one thing that's, Amer that's unique to American history is of uh, the late 19th century, the United States, due to sort of 
racist sentiment that was growing in California after the Chinese had helped to build the railroad and do incredibly dangerous work. Uh, they were often involved in the dynamiting of uh, the passages that went through the uh, Rocky Mountains. Uh, thousands of people were injured, lost their lives. Um, but once that work was completed, then there was a sense that the Chinese um, were unassimilable and therefore uh, unwanted as American immigrants. And so uh, what's unique about the United States is they actually pass a law called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which actually forbids further Chinese immigration. And so the Chinese are in fact the only group in American history to ever be barred entry into the United States. And that occurred in the 1880s and continued and was renewed up until the 1920s. So you're talking about a pre pretty significant, almost half century of time period where Chinese emigration was basically cut off and it divided families because oftentimes men had come to look for work and left wives back in China. And then after the Chinese Exclusion Act, those women were not allowed to join their husbands in the new country. So families were split up. Um, in terms of the effects today, I think there's still a sense that the Chinese uh, are unassimilable. Um, and yet, at the same time, they are also pointed out to be one of the more successful uh, immigrant stories because probably their cultural uh, affinity for education has helped them rise through the ranks. Uh, if you look at university graduation rates, uh, Asian students are, are near the top of the list. And I think that that has been a key to their success in sort of eventually finding a place in America. I know, I was actually kind of surprised <coughs> about the, uh, the history of the Chinese in America. I mm. felt kind of embarrassed that I didn't know more about it. Uh, and mm. <laughs> when I heard about it, I was a little bit mm. uh, shocked. I know Canada has a contentious history with uh, Chinese relations as well, and uh, but I didn't realize that in North America it went on for so long, so yeah, it was kind of shocking to me as well. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, race relations and ghettos, in this uh, book, they, uh, black people in um, uh, the free state end up in a ghetto, and uh, that's where they feel safe and where they feel a sense of community. How are race relations and ghettos connected in history? Personally, I've learned a lot more about the nature of ghettos uh, through your course at Brock University, uh, but our, tell our listeners a little bit about what makes a place somewhere that we would consider a ghetto. Well, I think uh, most people, and that's what I did on the very first uh, evening of our course, uh, have an image, a pr very particular, specific image of a ghetto as a place of pathos, of high crime, drugs, poverty, police brutality, uh, drive-by shootings. And it's usually when most people think of ghettos, the group that they first think of in their mind is African-Americans. Um, the reality is far different, I would argue. Uh, most immigrant groups to the United States have initially formed ghettos. Um, and there's really sort of Two main reasons for that, uh, what sociologists call push and pull factors. So part of it is, in fact, the push of white racism. Um, people don't want people uh, living next to them. And there were many ways through the 19th and early 20th century that this, this was accomplished. Um, for example, uh, the 
real estate agents would form what were called real estate covenants where people would actually sign and agree that they would not sell houses uh, in a particular location to members of a, of a certain ethnicity. Um, simple acts of violence. There were uh, you know, attempts in early suburban places where middle-class African-Americans tried to move in, where their homes were firebombed. And so even, you know, acts of absolute violence uh, were used to deter people from sort of living in areas that they weren't uh, considered to be appropriate for. But I think the other aspect that people give less attention to is the pull factors, which is the sort of more positive aspects of living in a ghetto. And I think to most people, it's surprising that you would hear somebody use a term positive aspects uh, when you're referring to a ghetto. Uh, but realistically, uh, by congregating together, uh, it helps people in many ways. Um, simple, it can be as simple things as, you know, uh, women, uh, working women, uh, sharing childhood, uh, you know, responsibilities. If somebody's working a night shift, uh, then they'll look after the child uh, who's working the, for a mother who's working the day shift and vice versa. So there's sort of that built-in support uh, network. Uh, oftentimes ghettos are formed simply because uh, people are uh, in need of shelter and housing and so the easiest thing is to move uh, in and stay in the apartment of an uncle or a cousin or a friend from the village that they came from in Italy or wherever it might be that they came from. And so that tends to perpetuate the concentration of people in one little locale um, because of the availability of housing and a place to sort of get started and make contacts for jobs. Um, but it can also be things like shared religion. Um, a classic example of that would be uh, the Jews in Lower East Side Manhattan. Uh, obviously, by living together, they could, uh, they could worship, they could afford to build synagogues. Uh, and uh, enjoy a sort of uh, release from uh, anti-Semitism by sort of living together and protecting one another. Um, same thing with the Irish. Uh, Irish people could also uh, live together, practice Catholicism. Um, and so church, language, issues of preservation of language, that also pulls people together. And even simple things uh, like cultural traditions such as food, um, what you saw when, as the African-American diaspora moved from the South into the North was the creation of ghettos in places like Chicago. And part of that was simply people wanting to have access to soul food uh, and uh, music, for example. So the center of the blues moved from first New Orleans and then as the People moved north, it then centered in Memphis, and then finally as it moved up the Mississippi River, ultimately blues is sort of centered in Chicago. And so I think a lot of cultural traditions are uh, important in pulling people together to that one locale because they feel comfortable uh, there. And so I think this image of the ghetto as being solely an area of uh, that people are pushed into I think that's erroneous, and I think the idea that it's simply a place of pathos is also erroneous. What impact does ghettoizing a community have on that group? And is, um, is isolation usually isolation by race? 
I think it's, you know, uh, there's positive and negative things. The negative consequence is that usually often uh, people use ghettoization as a justifications for saying that these people are unassimilable. A good example of that would be the Chinese. Um, it's, it's a classic example of blaming the victim. Um, the Chinese chose in places like San Francisco and New York and some of the other large American cities to congregate together, again, to protect uh, things like language, uh, to have access to food that they were uh, accustomed to. And then, you know, the reaction to white Americans was that this proved that they were unassimilable and that they were uh, undesirable as immigrants. And the reality was, you know, they were simply attempting to preserve their culture and maintain uh, some of their traditions, and then they're being blamed for that. So I think it has negative connotations for the outside world. Um, and then for the people themselves, as I said, it can be positive in the sense that uh, definitely it allows people a sense of community, a sense of family, um, what you see within ghetto communities is a much larger and a very different sense of family than you see among sort of white middle class uh, families uh, in middle America. You know, the, the essence is the nuclear family, mom, dad, and the 2.3 children. Whereas, you know, most ghetto communities, because of the nature of people having to work and struggle to survive, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, cousins, they're all involved in the raising of children uh, and active in sort of familial life, uh, hosting dinners and, and, and such. Uh, so it's a very different concept of what constitutes family. So I think overall there's, there's both positive and negative uh, aspects to ghettoization. So in the book The Illegal, the uh, government of the Freedom State uh, passes legislation to remove illegal aliens from their country, or really any immigrants who don't have any papers. Uh, mm. While this book was written before the current American administration, it seems to have a lot of similarities to election promises made by uh, the current administration. Um, how are race relations and immigration and refugees connected in the United States? Why is it such a contentious issue? Well, first of all, I'd say uh, Larry Hill was very uh, beneficial of uh, what happened in America. I'm sure his book has sold so many of the issues that he talks about in this book are so relevant in terms of policies of immigration, uh, refugee status, um, and immigration in general. Um, I think the reality is um, this isn't a new phenomenon, and I think that's uh, we see this time and time again that the reality is race relations are often uh, directly tied to the economic well-being of the nation. And so when you find uh, the nation in a period of economic downturn, race relations are usually worse. Um, it's really only when people are experiencing prosperity that you see a sort of upswing in uh, race relations. And so I think the, the events in the book and the current uh, sort of uh, what's going on in politically in the United States represents this long-standing tradition that during times of economic crisis it's you know, politically advantageous to blame a scapegoat 
Uh, and uh, we've seen this before in the United States history, uh, going back to the Depression era, Huey Long, who was a governor of Louisiana, uh, achieved national prominence by essentially saying that rich people were to blame for the depression and he proposed that every single individual be limited to a million dollars personal wealth and that anybody who had more than that it would be confiscated and redistributed to poor people. Um, so there was an example of a very class-based bias. Uh, George Wallace in the 1960s from Alabama you know, runs uh, very contentious campaigns, essentially scapegoating African-Americans as the problem and the civil rights movement uh, as being the problem of America. Um, so I, th I, I don't think that Trump represents anything new in American history. It represents a sort of uh, uh, ongoing uh, ability of a sort of populist demagogue to sort of convince people that there's somebody to blame for the frustration that they're experiencing in their lives. And in that respect, probably the most recent example that you would make a comparison with would be uh, Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Again, coming out of a period of disillusionment, the United States had suffered through a very embarrassing uh, fiasco in Vietnam. On top of that, uh, the Watergate scandal uh, really caused tremendous sense of uh, disillusionment with the government. And then finally, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis uh, that happened under the Carter administration just really gave Americans a sense that their government was impotent. And Ronald Reagan came in and said he was going to make America strong again, which may sound familiar because, of course, that uh, Donald Trump tended to uh, steal that as his own slogan for his most recent campaign. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the reality is I think that this is sort of a, just a, a longstanding tradition in American politics to blame others uh, during harsh economic times. And uh, the easiest people to blame are people who are sort of labeled outsiders. So whether they're outsiders because they weren't born in the United States or outsiders because they're a, a different race, uh, that's, they seem to be the uh, easiest people to scapegoat. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to have a conversation with me today about this. Uh, I think it's a really interesting topic, and I think that our uh, readers and our listeners are going to uh, uh, very much enjoy learning more about it. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. It was a tiny living space, even when his mother was not there. Their one room, half a shipping container, rented for $100 a month, though Lula eased up on the payment obligations whenever John's mother was too ill to work. In the room, a four-drawer dresser for all their clothes, two single Murphy beds that folded up against the wall when not occupied, one fold-up kitchen table that doubled as a homework desk, two chairs, a portable stove attached to the butane tank, a large cooler that with ice became a fridge, a transistor radio, several reading lamps with spare light bulbs and spare batteries, and four pots whose purposes were never interchangeable. A soup pot, a dishes pot, a wash pot, and a chamber pot. As I've been reading The Illegal, I've been looking for historical comparisons between the world that Hill has created and the historic St. Catharines. 
There were a few connections, and one that jumped out at me was Africtown. The reasons for the existence of ghettos or specific villages are quite different, but the conditions that are found in these locations are similar. During the construction of the canals, it was quite common for workers to live on site. Especially during the first and second canal construction projects, workers generally set up camp either on or right next to a construction site, some with their families. The houses, and I use the term house quite loosely here, were constructed from leftover building materials. One local camp was famously known as Slabtown. You can just imagine what safety standards were like in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. Children and families were commonplace. Services were non-existent, including sanitation, clean water, and any sort of police service. It was a bit like the Wild West, with the canal company and its contractors managing the lives of the workers. The conditions that these people, mostly immigrant workers from the United States and Western Europe, were living in could quite easily be compared to the conditions that some of the characters endure while living in Africtown. Temporary housing, lack of services, poverty, precarious work, along with a generally unfriendly or corrupt police force. There are a couple of sources that give us a good description of some of the issues that workers and the company were dealing with. It may sound as if I'm reading from the illegal, but actually I'm reading from letters and papers of the Welland Canal Company, as found in the Champlain Society publication, The Great Swivel Link, Canada's Welland Canal, by Roberta Styran and Robert Taylor. The influx into the province, also of a number of Irish and other laborers who have been engaged on the works in the United States prior to their suspension, has much increased our difficulty, especially on the Niagara frontier. There, as appears from reports of the superintendent and engineer of the Welland Canal, several riots have taken place within the last day or two. These gentlemen report that the unemployed men have intimidated and maltreated those at work, have assembled tumultuously, and broke open and plundered the stores, and that their conduct has been so outrageous as to make it necessary that two companies of the rifles should be forthwith quartered in the neighborhood of that work. I have to request, therefore, that you will be so good as to have the necessary steps taken for the stationing of troops there, taken without loss of time, and I would recommend that Mr. William Beverly Robinson, who is the superintendent of the canal, be put in the commission of the peace for the Niagara district. I have written to him to provide the necessary barracks and to communicate thereupon with the officer in command at Drummondville. Although I recommend thus strongly the employing of military as now indispensable to check and prevent outrage, I would respectfully urge upon His Excellency consideration of the expediency of at once proceeding with the works of the Welling Canal upon a more extensive scale, and also with others in different sections of the country. There is no time when they can be so economically carried on as at the present, and the proceeding with several works will prevent that crowding on one point which must lead to disturbance and bloodshed. The board do not consider themselves responsible for the acts of the laborers or for depredations committed by them, but whenever it can be proved that any man employed by a contractor has done any damage to neighboring property, the board are willing when they can with propriety do so, to compel the contractors to pay the amount of damages done by such person, if he can be found in the service of the contractor, who can then deduct such amount from wages due to the offender. The next reading is from an article written by Alan Hughes about the Battle of Slabtown on July 12, 1849. 
This was the glorious 12th, the date when the Irish Protestants celebrated the defeat of the Catholics at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Having heard rumors that local Protestants planned a march, 300 Catholics came from as far away as Port Colburn and assembled in St. Catharines on July 11th. When told the following day that the rumor was false, they started off home. A number of Catholics went south along Thorold Road. Meanwhile, William Duffin, a member of Centerville Loyal Orange Lodge, number 77, formed two years previously, was hosting a dinner for fellow brethren at his inn. Fearing a Catholic attack, they had armed themselves and cut loopholes for guns in the walls of the inn and the adjoining barn. The Catholics had decided to limit their protests to calling out taunts as they passed the inn, but the Orangemen f- opened fire, leaving two Catholics killed and six or seven injured. Nineteen Orangemen were indicted, including five Bradleys, but a grand jury returned a verdict of no bill. The Battle of Slabtown soon acquired a mythical status among Orangemen. Annual celebrations were held, history was rewritten, and Catholics were branded as aggressors. In 1852, commemorative medals were presented to surviving combatants at a dinner attended by 200 people. The inscription on the medal reads, Presented to X for Valiant Conduct at Centerville Mills. At issue for me is the presence of Africtown in the book serves as part of the criticism of how refugees are treated, whether they are in transit or if they have arrived in a new place. But Africtown and Camp's like it exist in the modern world where it is unacceptable to have people living in these conditions i sometimes feel that history is used as an excuse to justify injustices and that we often excuse the poor safety and living conditions of workers on the canal because that's how it was when instead we should be learning from our history to help correct the same or similar injustices today Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, everyone. Special thanks to Associate Professor Murray Wickett for taking the time to help us with the book club and for sharing his expertise with us. I can't believe that Books and Brews is almost over. How is it already April? This is crazy. To celebrate our hugely successful winter 2017 Books and Brews series, we're very excited to announce our selections for the fall 2017 Books and Brews taking place in September, October, and November. So before we reveal the selections, uh, just want to let you know that for the next Books and Brews series, we were trying to think of a way to link our series to Canada's 150th celebrations, celebrating the 150th anniversary of Canada's Confederation. So to do that and to tie Books and Brews into that, we came up with a list of Canadian novels that explore different aspects of Canadianness. And we chose two ourselves and we did a survey of our past Books and Brews participants. Thank you everyone for participating in that. And so our next books will be... Thomas King's Green Grass Running Water. Margaret Lawrence's The Diviners. And, by popular demand, Jacques Poulin, Volkswagen Blues. Woohoo! <laughs> we are so excited for the fall, and we can't wait for you guys to join us. Be 
sure to follow the St. Catharines Museum on our various social media platforms. We're on Facebook at dash St. Catharines Museum. We're on Twitter and Instagram at STC Museum and on our WordPress blog at stcatharinesmuseumblog.com. Special thanks to the Department of History at Brock University and to our Books and Brews presenting partner, Mate Cafe and Lounge. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines.